0: If you're in Washington, you're going to think twice about sitting next to Facebook or showing up at an event that Facebook's funded. Like, that's a pronounced difference than six years ago. They're not not the party that you want to be at. So I think that's a realization and an understanding of what's actually happening beyond just the stock price going up.
1: You're listening to FIP Unscripted. The podcast that chats to the big names in media about their passions, their opinions, and their personal experiences in this challenging industry. This podcast is brought to you by PressReader, the world's largest digital newsstand. With PressReader, publishers reach diverse audiences and monetize their content in new ways. Bring your publications to every corner of the globe, including at sea and in the air. Join PressReader today. Hello and welcome to episode five of Media Unscripted. Today, we are joined by Jason Kind, who is the CEO of Digital Content Next. Now, in case you don't know who they are, DCN, as they're known in the business, is the US cousin of FIP, and the trade association represents some of the biggest brands in digital content, guiding them through the murky media waters. Jason is a 25-year veteran of the digital media industry, having led the evolution of CBS Sports into a multi-platform brand. Prior to that, he worked in various executive roles, launching and leading all of the Times Mirror magazine's flagship websites. In this interview, Jason talks about what DCN brings to the industry, the changes he has seen, current trends, and what the future looks like for online content, which he believes is pretty positive. As you might expect, we talk about fake news or toxic sludge, as Jason calls it the trust issue it causes and why social media platforms need to do more to prevent the spread of disinformation rather than just blocking accounts. We also talk about the different legislative efforts going on across the world against Google and Facebook. Jason has always been very outspoken about their duopoly and we talk about the growing awareness of the imbalance of power in publishing but how there is still a long way to go. Other topics up for discussion include the importance of CEOs having an approachable personal brand, the public's perception of the media industry, and why they are hungry for brands they can trust. There is so much more that we cover in this interview, so let's see what Jason has to say. Jason, hello, welcome. 2 Media Unscripted, from one side of the pond to the other, from Digital Content Next to FIP. Thank you so much for joining us. I just want to dive straight in actually and ask you a question about, about Digital Content Next, because you changed your name, didn't you? You were the Online Publishers Association up, up until 2014. And I'm just curious to know why the name changed and kind of what that represented and what it meant to its members. Sure.
0: Um, yeah, we did a in 2014 as part of a relaunch of the organization. And the intention to was recognize what the intention was to recognize um, what made us unique, which was we were exclusively focused on the companies they're creating the content, the news and entertainment, and we were also wanting to be exclusively focused on the future, right? And so we were bringing together a lot of different verticals under one roof um, with an agenda of figuring out and shaping the future that it would be a good one for trusted content, and so that was the. That was the method behind the madness. Um, a lot of people call us DCN now, but but uh, it's it's stuck.
1: Pretty impressive members. Can you just talk me through some of the key players that you work with?
0: Sure. I mean, you know, within each of those verticals of newspapers, magazines, television, and, and pure plays, importantly, kind of those that were born out of the digital world, we've got you know, much of everybody, and, uh, the you know from the what would be classically called the newspaper category news properties, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, international groups like Financial Times. But then we have your CBS, NBC, Disney, uh, Paramount, I should say, instead of CBS at this point. Um, It's on down with the TV companies, Warner Media. But then we've got pure plays like Vox Media and Mm -hmm. Business Insider, Mm -hmm. Atlantic, and, you know, really across every category. Even NPR, more of an audio company. Um, So, so, Really recognizing that those definitions of the past no longer are really relevant as you think about the future world, which is driven really by, you know, by the internet uh, and IP protocol. The other thing that's fairly unique is we look at the entire, the entire revenue model, the entire strategy from the brand down, and not just advertising, for instance.
1: Sure, Can I was going to ask you exactly what exactly does. DCN offer these brands what you know why are they on board they're huge names what do they get from being part of your association you
0: know we we bring them together um, in you know closed door rooms often for best practice sessions to learn from each other in a trusted environment Mm -hmm. we do a lot of proprietary research benchmarking uh, quarter to quarter annual kind of where the the revenue trends are going and all parts of the the media environment, from mobile to desktop to video. Uh, We also do advocacy and policy work for them, both in in D.C., but then in the state level where there's a lot of activity here in the U.S., and then in Brussels or even Australia last year where a a critical new law was passed. And so um, it, it runs the kind of typical work for a trade association. We also have a subsidiary organization under our nonprofit profit called TrustX, which acts as a, a private mm-hmm. exchange for our members that delivers advertising in a way that we think is more respectful of, of where the future is going.
1: You're obviously, you're at the front line of publishing. So where is the future? What's the current trend at the moment? You know,
0: we like to think we're always a, a few years ahead. And so, you know, where I think three, four years ago, you know, certainly when we, re- we relaunched, um, we had a lot of concern around the ways that the media environment was eroding as we shifted towards more automated ways of doing things which you know at their very core should have been a positive because we could find more efficient ways to deliver mm-hmm. advertising and to distribute news and entertainment across other platforms in the digital world but the the industry hadn't matured yet and there was a lot of disruption and erosion of that trust between consumers, advertisers and and publishers and really believe in the last mm-hmm. few years we've seen a lot of progress and both in the I think in the press coverage of of the industry and what's happening in in regulator channels and in legislative legislation work that's happening and I think it's maturing the way we think about digital in a way that will be more positive for for our members. Um, you know what's really unique about about premium publishers and our members is that they have a direct and trusted relationship with the, the audience and with the advertisers. And a lot of the mm-hmm. a lot of the progress that's happening is respectful of that, whether it be you know changes to the way data can be used or you know limitations on on gatekeeper power that's happening in, in Europe and monopoly power. And so um, we're seeing a lot of positive trends across our members organization and that's it's actually showing now and that some of the revenue growth too
1: and i know that before this interview now we've had a little chat about what we'll talk about and you mentioned that dcn has enjoyed its strongest year in history which i would say is surprising given the current climate covid19 etc um what has driven that change
0: you know it's we've seen it build up the last few years and certainly covid um has forced us like anyone else to find new ways to to Serve our members, and a lot of that's been through the through the virtual world. And but it's allowed us also to engage more broadly. We've had a lot of interest in our organization from overseas, from from Europe, from uh, Canada, mm-hmm. from Australia. Our agenda, so we've been able to engage more um, easily in that way. I think our members more broadly have been able to engage um, because most of what we did before COVID was was in New York, and we will we're adding all that back in mm-hmm. this year, but. But we kind of were, mm-hmm. were forced to find new ways to serve our members while at the same time all the ways that we have in the past are being layered back in. You know, when I say our strongest year in history, I think you know from a retention level, um, we've we retained like ninety eight percent of our members through the pandemic, which we're very pleased. And from a financial perspective, even though we're a nonprofit, yeah. we've we had our uh, best financial year. Um, so. So I think we're we're in a position of strength, and our agenda is on the future, which I think puts us in a, a good place. Versus if we were trying to save save relics of the past.
1: Yeah, it's interesting in a way. Is is your success a reflection of the potentially the the difficulties publishing's having? Because if they're having problems because of because of COVID nineteen, for example, the pandemic has had a massive impact. Right? Are they then looking? To the likes of DCN for guidance and advice, so so in a way, this, your success is reflecting what's going on in the real world, which potentially isn't as successful.
0: Um, you know, financially, our members are also having a very positive twenty twenty one into twenty twenty two was a very positive year, and I think that the again with the with what happened with the pandemic, you know, it's well documented on the entertainment side in terms of the increase in in consumption, but the the shift towards direct-to-consumer video products from the Warner Medias and the Peacocks and et cetera, you know, that only accelerated. And then the news subscription business accelerated. And so, and now the advertising market's coming back. Yeah. Uh, You know, obviously the last month creates a lot of additional uncertainty, but with Ukraine, et cetera, but, um, but the trends are positive, Charlotte coming out, which is, is is great. I, I do think you're onto something in that the needs, there there is a need that we've been able to deliver on and that's been important to that success. And so, mm-hmm. you know, a very uh, tactical example would be we regularly surveyed our members regarding uh, how they were handling the pandemic and, and what they were doing in terms of, of back to office and, and were able to give them kind of some guidance and in terms of what other media companies were doing. And I think that was Helpful, But then, you know, another reflection would be that there's, you know, lots and lots of lawsuits right now around Google and Facebook that are happening, particularly in the antitrust world. And we've been very active in those. And I think that's also been very helpful to our members. So.
1: Sure. I, mean, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, sort of, the, you know, the biggest kind of news stories in online publishing in the past year or so has been different legislative efforts that are going, going on across the world against Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, for example, you just touched on the antitrust legislation which is trying to put an end to the, their dominance in online media and advertising and you also mentioned in Australia a new law now so are they the first country to pass this new media law that they mean that Google and Facebook have to pay for news are they the first to they, do that they
0: really are yeah the first major um you know pretty major media market um and you know the, the Europe is working through uh, execution on on a state by member state by member state level and the UK has got a new law that's yeah, new law's um,
1: being drawn up in the UK by the UK government at the moment, aren't they?
0: Yeah, being drawn up. So I think you know what's what's interesting is you know we've kind of encouraged, we've stayed focused on the the issue of of the dominance of the two companies and making sure everybody agreed kind of on the on the analysis. And now you're seeing solutions that are rolling out globally and I think they're all learning from each other and improving on them you're going to see something from Canada very soon too which will probably build on Australia and so I think you know there's some some you know sharing of information and learning across the the various countries too which is very positive and we like to see that.
1: Sure I mean I, I talked about the UK government there I mean Google and Facebook took almost four-fifths of the 14 billion spent on digital advertising in the UK in 2019 and national and local local newspapers took less than four percent which is Really, quite remarkable. So something clear needs to be done. Do you think these new laws are going to change this?
0: Yeah, I think Australia is is compelling the negotiate. We, what we liked about Australia was it's uh, we worry too much about regulator overreach. So um, it compels the negotiation and gets them to the table. It recognizes that there's this imbalance in bargaining power, and it mm. tries to mm. solve for that and and. Force the two sides to negotiate, and it has this interesting kind of stick on the back end that if they don't, um, they have they have, you know they come in with an arbitration process that that could be concerning to both parties. And so, I think Australia is making a difference. I think it's making a difference not just for the big news companies, but it is for the small and mediums too. Um, that's starting to happen now, and and I think that's a very a very good thing. Um, and so you'll see that roll out. But the the important thing is having that stick that kind of forces the negotiation Um, because clearly there's an imbalance in bargaining power. And, you know, whether or not it fully resolves the issues underneath is is a different question. We've always, as we've always talked about and analyzed the duopoly, we've always connected that also back to their unique ability to collect data and use data to target advertising. And that... That piece also needs to be solved for. Yeah, it's
1: interesting. I read something from the Department of Digital Culture, Media, and Sport in the UK said that um, the measures would give publishers greater transparency over the algorithms that drive traffic and revenue, more control over the presentation and branding of their content, as well as greater access to data on how users interact with their content. So it could make a huge difference, right, in terms of data collection, uh, advertising revenue, etc. Couldn't it?
0: it? It could, and you know, I think what's important in that is data has positive uses and negative uses and and what's important is that it's being used in line with the users' expectations and so if you're describing a world in which that data helps the publisher better serve the user with content or news entertainment then that's probably a positive development for the user especially if it's being done in aggregate and then you know if the users' data is are kind of broadly browsing the web or if they're, you know, on their phone going in and out of apps, if that data is then being passed to a hundred different companies that they don't even want to be interacting with or, you know, at that moment at least, or they might not even know they exist, then that's a negative use and GDPR and some of the privacy laws are dealing with that.
1: I know there's also a big drive to classify facebook and google as publishers rather than tech companies um and that will ensure they're subject to the same kind of copyright rules as new york times and the guardian etc is that a separate issue to them then paying for
0: content it is and you know where that goes is a, is a bigger question that's you know it's been a through fits and starts um including you know liability uh protection regarding what's on the platform um you know it's there's clearly a a definition for a platform where it, it consists entirely of user-generated content where the platform is kind of a dumb platform, if you will. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and there's some sort of liability protection for, for that. But when you get to the, the world where a YouTube or a Facebook operate and the content's not just user content sitting on the platform, but they're actually making curation decisions and filtering stuff in and out and using algorithms that also make them extraordinary amounts of profits, then you're you're sitting in a in a gray area, and that gray area is deserving of a lot of discussion because what what doesn't work is full liability protection for what's on your platform, but then at the same time the ability to extract as much profit out of out of deciding what gets put in front of the user. Yeah, um, which is sure. you know the world where a publisher competes <laughs> yeah. is really deciding what to put in front of the user.
1: What? can members of the media do in terms of making a practical difference to these issues we've been discussing here? You know, for example, should they be looking at alternatives to Facebook for their marketing?
0: You know, I, that's the tricky part. It's a good question, is uh, they have to run their business in the moment and, and you know, pay for their newsrooms, for instance, in the moment. And so, you know, I always say they need to be, and they need to be where the audiences are, right? And the audiences are on Facebook right now. And so, mm-hmm. so they certainly need to treat them as as marketing vehicles uh, for their brands and make sure they're reaching the audiences where they want in, in a way that they feel like be protective of what their value is in terms of the trust of their brand and, and the environment they want to be consumed. And so, you know, really to draw on the line between that versus the policy changes that need to happen. And I think that's where, frankly, again, back to the point about where hopefully DCN's filling the need and, and other organizations um, out there like FIP are filling a need is is they're providing a, a vehicle for members to channel those concerns and needs for the future and that they can be brought together and advocated on behalf of them. Um, but kind of, you know, they have to be able to balance those two. And I think it's, it would be um. destructive. I would say it'd be destructive if a publisher said, I'm going to pull out of YouTube and Facebook and Instagram altogether because, I'm worried about these platforms yeah. because that's where the audiences are.
1: So I guess at the moment there is no solution, right?
0: I mean, advocating and, you know, and, and also I gotta give a lot of respect to the, the press who have gotten, I think, a lot smarter on these issues over the last few years. I think all of the discussion around it has forced everybody to up their game, including myself and trade groups too, think tanks. So so keeping everything front and center and not getting bored by it is also important. Um, you know, the, the attitude that, oh, we've already talked about all the problems with Facebook – let's not cover it anymore, <laughs> that would be a bad one because it's the, probably the, one of the biggest issues of the mm, times yes, of the day. Mm. And so, so they need to keep their newsrooms also focused on the issues.
1: Can you see a point in the future? This will no longer be a topic of discussion. That I it can.
0: Will... I optimistically can, yeah. I mean, I, when I showed up and we realized this organization and I showed up in D.C., I, I wasn't even based in D.C., there was almost no criticism at all of tech platforms. Like they had such a halo over them that they could not do anything wrong. and they were so embedded in our Congress and our federal government in DC that it was it was um, quite shocking. And so because there wasn't a real understanding of what was yeah. happening and what the you know the issues were and the positives and the negatives, the trade-offs and so, because they hadn't been educated yet, and so I think that's changed. The halo is clearly off and in a material way and you know if you're in Washington, you're gonna think twice about sitting next to Facebook or showing up at an event that Facebook's funded. like that's a pronounced difference than six years ago. Um, sure. they're not they're not the, the party that you want yeah. to be at and so yeah so I think that's a realization and an understanding of what's actually happening beyond just the stock price going up and so, um, that's, that's, that takes time to break that sure. down. And now you've got real discussions about what do we want in the future and how do we do in a way that we don't undermine innovation and, 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 you know, positive change, which, you know, those platforms can absolutely bring to.
1: And I know you've always been very vocal about the, Criticizing that the duopoly of Facebook and Google. And back in twenty fourteen, you wrote to Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Wrote a letter to them. Did you get a response to that? Did anything yeah, happen you know, there as was a result some of that? Behind
0: the scenes responses, I'd call it. Uh, the nothing material. And I think that you know that may have been twenty sixteen. I think the letter you're recognizing. Um, I, the the focus of that letter. And I think we're still watching them struggle with it today. Was recognizing that brands are proxies for trust that you know if you strip a piece of news and entertainment from the brand or the publisher and you don't use that brand as a signal of value then you're going to undermine the the trust of the the public in civil society and and that's going to be an issue and and so both platforms had uh, you know a large amount of i think i I may have called it toxic sludge or, you know, this kind of litter of the, of the platforms. And, you know, for the extraordinary amount of resources that Google and Facebook have, and at the time and and still today, you know, they're capturing 80, 90% of the growth in our industry in terms of advertising, an extraordinary amount of resources they have in terms of engineering talent and, you know, projects they get excited about and work on, whether it be, you know, Facebook in the virtual world or, or, you know, Google and self-driving cars. Like, we didn't see them and we still haven't seen them put that sort of extraordinary intelligence and talent towards dealing with disinformation and toxic sludge on their platforms. And and so there are better ways for them to operate as platforms that may cost them some profits. But recognizing that if you see a headline and you don't know if it's from Russia Today or the Wall Street Journal, that's a problem. <laughs> And that that brand means something to the user, and and we want them to focus more on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, speaking of toxic sludge and branding, we've seen Putin introducing a censorship law, which essentially outlaws independent journalism, mm. while in Brazil, Bolsonaro faces numerous accusations of using fake news as a political weapon. Um, I mean, at least in Brazil, it's like something positive is happening, right? You've got eight social media networks, including Facebook and Google, Who have signed an agreement to fight disinformation during the presidential elections? So, do you think things are getting better and that these platforms are starting to take some responsibility?
0: You know, it's um, one thing we've tried to do, and this is our analysis on this end, you know, where there's been a lot of debate and discussion around misinformation, disinformation, censorship, et cetera, is we've stayed focused on the antitrust issues in that. You know, with the extraordinary market power of, of a couple companies making the decisions and the lack of competition, that has all sorts of downstream effects. And we think the quality of information is, is, is one of those two. Um, with, the, you know, a simple kind of lay, lay version of that question is, like, if Facebook didn't own Instagram over the last three or four years, like that letter that we talked about that I, that we sent to Mark Zuckerberg – they would have re- reacted differently, right They would have reacted more aggressively um, to the issues that have hit Facebook in the last number of years if they didn't own Instagram. The fact that they own Instagram gave them the comfort to not deal with the problems at the at the level they need to deal with them and and the extraordinary profits they continue to get in what way do you mean? meaning that you know if you're if you're facebook the the traditional blue app. You know, and you're watching Instagram as this fast-growing, competitive platform for younger users, um, if you're the Facebook Blue app, you would be innovating more quickly to make sure that the quality of your platform in terms of you know, the, the, the information you put in front of users, um, concerns that your users have around disinformation and misinformation, and how you're spreading it, um, how you're dealing with their data, and you know everything that happened with Cambridge Analytica. You would handle all those issues more aggressively in serving the public, and serving you know, mm, and responding mm. to legislators and regulators. Yeah, if you were competing against Instagram rather than you owned the two companies that are the only real two. So, so that's you know, competition. You know, it's a bit of a, a U.S. view on this, but you know, competition solves a lot of these issues. You know, back to your. Your core question that I'd be remiss if I didn't also point out that, you know, in our letters and communications, we've always been very clear that we're, we get very concerned when they're blocking accounts or they're blocking users and anything that comes close to censorship and where we think they really need to focus as platforms, particularly around disinformation, is on what spreads it, you know, and actually how they filter and how they accelerate the spread and the velocity and reach of that, of that disinformation. And, you know, putting labels on things is one thing, but also making sure it doesn't spread. Like, you know, they kicked Donald Trump off the platforms and that should make us all uncomfortable because he was currently president, you know, to some extent that one company has that power. Maybe the solution is to leave him on the platform and make sure nobody sees him. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And as well as preventing the spread of disinformation it's also all about protecting freedom of speech right right and i mean on top of this there's a complicated matter of well i mean who decides what disinformation is because right. the expression is banded about by governments who are trying to stop independent journalism and spread propaganda so in some ways it depends what your interpretation of disinformation is
0: yeah i mean ultimately we like for the platform to they're responsible for what's on their platform and and we don't want the government to get in the way of that outside of Violate when they violate the law. Um, they've got their own terms of service, and and we want them to follow their terms of service. But we want competition, and we also have concerns around, you know, how they recommend and spread content. You know, it's it's one thing to, you know, take Alex Jones as another example of kind of, you know, I think incredibly low integrity content. It's one thing to allow people who are seeking out Alex Jones or Infowars, that his publication. allow them to come find it but it's it's completely something different if you're actually putting it in front of Mm. people who you think Mm. might react to it and they do the latter right they don't do the former Um, that's where their power is
1: Following on from that, I want to talk to you about another major player in social media, which is Twitter, and I know you're a fan. Um, over fifty thousand followers.
0: And you know, I'm an active, I'm a very active user. Um, some of the problems that we're talking about also exist on Twitter, for sure.
1: Now that's obviously your voice piece and a place where you can express your own opinions. And I just wanted to ask about personal branding and how important it is for executive like yourself to show the human face of their company.
0: That's a really interesting question, and it's I know there's been some timely debate around this um you know from an executive level it needs you know the authenticity with the the organization and making the organization approachable i think is absolutely positive and you know that can happen across different platforms depending on what the the brand and the executive um what their audience is and what they're trying to accomplish mm, mm. Uh, it has to be authentic right yeah and so you know i spent a long time before i took this job in a senior executive roles, including, you know, at CBS sports. And I was always urged to, to be active and, and it came actually, maybe it's ironic to hear this, but it came uh, less natural for me. It wasn't something that I really was was seeking out at the time um, to be a public face, but it was, you know, it was at the time, it was a way to be more authentic and kind of give a behind the scenes view into, into how the media gets made. And So very interesting in that regard, but it has to be natural, I guess. Um, In in the role I'm in now, and and what's unique and why Twitter actually I think is probably the right platform, is trade associations, member associations, people who are trying to figure out the future together. um, There's a lot of active discussion. There is a need to be able to react quickly to what's going on, there's a need to not be responsive, mm-hmm. you know, three months at a time and, you know, write an op-ed anymore, like every three months or six months, like a trade group maybe did back in the past, and so, so, you know, we have very clear principles as an organization, I try to embody those and live by them, um, but be active in the, you know, discussion day to day, and, you know, most journalists are active on Twitter, right? Yeah. They very much skewed towards journalists, and so, it allows me to to have regular back and forth, you know, public, private, et cetera, based on you know what's going on and being a hundred percent transparent about it. Which, you know, I think at the end, they also hopefully is a bit of the antithesis of what we see with these kind of opaque platforms, <laughs> where you know we don't know what they're doing and they they work on quotes on background with reporters. And so um, we put it out there, and I you know I think that's been our strategy, and it's you know hopefully it's working.
1: Sure, and do you think that again, following on from we've talked about fake news and that the the trust that people have in media, do you think the media in general is seen as approachable and trustworthy um or do you think the public kind of see it as a closed shop and in the pockets of big corporations and the governments i
0: always, i'm I'm pausing just because I always hesitate in talking about the media broadly, sure, yeah, uh, you know the media broadly clearly as a entity um it has lower trust than it's had in a long time, um, you know, but at the same time, individual brands are very much trusted depending on the relationship they have with the the audience and, you know, an entertainment that can be less controversial, but it's meaningful. You know, I think there's a whole massive uh, audience right now for like a product like Disney Plus where parents are saying... I'll put my kid in front of Disney Plus. Yes. I trust Disney yes, as a company, yeah. as a brand, um, and I'll put them in front of that versus you know YouTube or TikTok, yeah. where I don't know what they're necessarily going to get. Um, in the news space, then you get into uh, some of the polarizing discussions we've had over the last few years. But still, you know, brands like Fox News with conservatives are as trusted as any brand out there, and brands. You know the counter of that on the progressive side is is highly trusted, and there's a whole range in the middle. And so, I think they're as trusted as they've ever been at the individual level. And I also think what's important broadly is that trust is built at times of vulnerability. And so, if you think about pandemic, you think about what's going on in Ukraine, people are hungry for who they should trust, and young people in particular are seeking out new mm. brands that they trust. And so, it's a Massive opportunity right now for, for news and entertainment brands.
1: Sure, that leaves nicely on top. I was going to say, how do, how, do you, how do you feel, personally, how do you feel about the future of digital content?
0: Yeah, I'm more optimistic than I think I've been since we relaunched this organization. And, and I think that's based on some of the things we've been talking about in the industry broadly has been talking about have been happening now the last few years. I'm seeing positive trends in the organizations that have been leaning into into their relationships with the audiences and the advertisers. And I'm seeing in, you know, again, I might be a little bit going against the wind on this in terms of conventional wisdom, but in Washington and Brussels and in London, I'm seeing some of the smarter discussions I've ever seen in terms of really unpacking what the issues are and understanding, you know, where digital media needs to go in terms of legislative discussion
1: yeah well can you give us an insight into a recent conversation that's maybe excited or inspired you
0: sure I you know I think in the. US where we focus a lot on polarization and in and, and the two parties uh, being on opposite sides of, of discussions I'd say conservatives and progressives Democrats and Republicans are fairly aligned on antitrust right now um, if you put them in the room and you kind of talk through the issues, they're very much aligned. And we've got state AGs across almost every state of both parties that are are suing Google and Facebook. And so that's positive, and it means that they're they're getting to the core issues rather than having the political discussions on the edges. In Brussels, the Digital Markets Act is is very close to passing, which is a gatekeeper law, and and it's got really broad support across all the parties and it's a very smart bill and so um that that makes me feel good
1: um if you could wave a magic wand a dcn wand and make one change for the media industry what would it be that you think would have the most powerful impact
0: the i you know the rights and use of data uh, has always been you know, you're getting into the weeds a little bit on this, but it's um, mm. that's where the market power is, and so integration of antitrust and data has always been critical. And recognizing that if a company has so much market power that they're able to collect and use data 24 seven across all of our websites for the most part, all of our apps, and then you know extract that for as much profit as possible wherever they want, um, that that's that's a significant issue for the future of media. And so the integration of of competition policy and, and data policy and that's happening, but if I my magic wand, that would be I would do that overnight because I think that would make a material impact on on the future of digital sure. media.
1: Great. Thank you. Well, that's a good place to finish, I think. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it, Jason. Thank you. Excellent.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, that's it for episode five of Media Unscripted. It was really interesting to get Jason's take on the key issues and the media industry right now, and really great news to hear that he thinks the industry is on the up. Next time, we'll be talking to Frederick Cashar, managing director of Editorial Globo and Sistema Globo de Radio, both of which are part of Grupo Globo, the largest mass media group in Latin America. Fred has worked there for 25 years and he knows the industry inside out. In our interview, he talks about fake news in Brazil and what Grupo Globo is doing to fight it, as well as other challenges in the industry, including changing the culture of the industry from within to embrace online content. Thank you, as always, to the podcast sponsor, PressReader, and thanks to you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please don't forget to like and subscribe.